It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this one featuring Professor Arnand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of UK in a Changing Europe. He's also uh, an author of a relatively recent book about Brexit. The link is in the notes that you can see on your iTunes or your SoundCloud, whatever it is, you, whatever platform you listen on, the link is there, uh, which is absolutely superb. A lot of the questions in this interview come out of that book, but as always... We meander around a whole world of things, including this wonderful organisation, UK in a Change in Europe, which, to be honest, when you first hear it, you presume, I would presume, is an outwardly pro-European organisation. It's not. And he talks about the academic work that they do, the fact that they are non-partisan, but aren't afraid to reach conclusions that ruffle feathers. It's brilliant. There's also an event coming up that he plugs, but just to remind you, on the 22nd of May, you'll hear him talk about it during the show, that is one of their events. So if you'd like to go to that event, uh, it's in Westminster. He gives details uh, during the show. This is absolutely wonderful and comes a week after speaking to Heidi Allen, who was the first person in a long time who I felt even though she was a Remainer, had positives to find from the world in which we're currently living, which, as a Remainer, is a, not necessarily the easiest thing. Arnand, similarly, now, he, his politics... We didn't really establish whether he was a Leaver or a Remainer. I didn't ask because of the nature of the work that he does. Although I would have to guess he's a Remainer, but I, I'm saying that now he's out of the room. So, Arnand, if you're listening you're not, or even if you are, uh, apologies. Um, but again... Genuine positivity about the, the the scenario, the landscape that we're currently existing in. So, if nothing else, there is there are positives to be taken, and that's true of any point um, in in life. So that, there's actually something really. I mean, Arnand is naturally upbeat anyway, and he's very funny and very likable, so that helps. But genuinely, it, I think sometimes by pure chance he's done the show immediately after Heidi Allen, and both of them, in very different ways. Make those points. Uh, we talk about a whole load of things. Um, we talk about his, his work with select committees, his uh, his work at university. Predominantly, though, we, we do talk about Brexit in so many different ways, about class, about where the seeds of dissatisfaction with the EU came from, about the campaign itself. It's wide-ranging. As always, of course, it flies by. So I will shut up. Oh, I'm on tour. And I know I do people say something with this, but this week, if you're listening... Uh, this week, and how do you know? It's the 1st of May when I record this, so um, happy 21st. Um, I'm in Sale, which is on the outskirts of Manchester, on the 2nd of May. So if you listen to... you're not, Would this have gone out? Daisy Knight, my producer, is looking at me gone out. Will it have gone out by then? This will be in the past, will it? <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> it's the 2nd of May I'll be in Sale. Very possibly in the, in the past by the time you listen to this. On Friday night, I'm at the Comedy Hall in Tiverton. 
Uh, so get your tickets for that. And uh, I've got some more coming up. And they've dropped off the pop- Old Loughborough Town Hall on Friday the 18th of May in the greatest region on earth, the East Midlands. I will shut up now and leave you in the wonderful hands of Arnand Menon. Today's guest is Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of UK in a Changing Europe. Anand, welcome to the show. Great to be here. But we're going to stop now because you have to say my name right. Oh, you know what? Because my mum's going to listen. Usually I don't care. Everyone says Anand, but it's wrong. It's Arnand. Arnand? And because my parents are going to listen, we're going to get this right. I'm so... You know, the thing is... But listen, the English are so thick that... From being at school, you'd, they'd say, what's your name? Anand. Oh, Anand. So in the end, I thought, all right, bugger it. I'll just introduce myself as Anand because it saves the pain of them irritating me from, you know, the first time I meet them. So I have sort of, you know, been a perpetrator of this. But given that my parents will almost certainly listen because they're both very old and they're at home and they don't do anything but listen to me now, then we're going to get it right. Well, hello, Mr and Mrs Menon. Did I get the Menon bit right? Yeah, Menon's right, yeah. Menon. Yeah. Mr and Mrs Menon listening at home. And where would they be listening? They live in Edinburgh. Oh, wow. Because yeah. you haven't got an Edinburgh accent. No, no, no. We grew up in, I grew up in West Yorkshire. Which bit? Uh, Wakefield. Oh, Wakefield, Westgate. Uh, cannot recommend it too lowly. I've been uh, to Wakey many times. Well, it's a great place. Good rugby league. Very nice fish and chips. Yeah, venue called The Cube. Do you know yeah. that? I've and, played there a couple uh, of times. A couple of very, very good nightclubs when I was young. Well, I remember the, the first time I'd ever been to a Flares was in Wakefield, yeah. Westgate. Yeah, we had a very good Yates's with plastic glasses. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Men are now living in Edinburgh. Yeah. Oh, one of the most, if not the most beautiful city in the UK. Cold, dark. Yeah, but every part of the UK, isn't it, really? Nah, London but... gets a bit of seasonal weather, but... Uh, don't, don't talk up Edinburgh. We have a family fight, because my brother's up there as well. So what made them choose Edinburgh? My bro- well, they had a choice... Like, when they decided to move from West Yorkshire and they wanted to be near grandkids, so it was a choice between Edinburgh and Oxford. Edinburgh's cheaper. Is it what, is. Is my official line, not that they're liking more or anything. But uh, A bit more to do in Edinburgh, isn't there? Than Oxford. No, yeah. Oxford's next to London, for God's sake. It's next to Heathrow. It's like... Yeah, but that's what people say, oh, the cricket's great because you can drink. Like, Oxford in itself has well, to offer something... Well, the cricket is great the, and yeah, you can drink. ...has to offer something <laughs> inherent in itself. You shouldn't have well, to get on the train me. to London. I mean, what more You're than one? Yeah. I mean, for, from your parents' point of view. Yeah, that's, that's what that's I meant. absolutely legitimate, <laughs> yeah. Um... Arnon, there are so many things, and I, I, I doubt we're going to cover them all uh, in the time that we've got, but you have a book out, Brexit and British Politics. Yeah. Which I've read, uh, which is brilliant. Um, one of the early things you do in the book is quote Russell Brand. Yeah. Would you like to apologise for that? We actually had an argument about that, uh, whether or not we should put it in. And I, I sort of thought, he's probably got enough publicity already we could do without. But it, it's spot on. And it, it sort of... I suppose my point with quoting Russell Brand was if he can get it right, it should be bleeding obvious and we should take it seriously. And the quote is about him not voting. They're all the same, was the point, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that he'd never voted before. Yeah, why Why should I vote because they're all the same? Uh, which I found infuriating to, to hear from a man who at the time was selling himself as an expert or at least someone who deserved to be listened to about politics. To say that he never voted, I thought, really undermined him. Well, I mean, don't get me started on celebrity as expert in the in the modern world. Oh, I hate mean, it. Yeah, I mean, Angelina Jolie is a visiting professor at the LSE, you name it, these things wind me up. Have you ever seen her speak? No. Uh, what do your colleagues... Uh, I imagine the broad consensus in academia is that these things are bad. Uh, no, I have, 
I have colleagues who are more reasonable and balanced than me <laughs> who will say, well, look, they bring some attention to causes that need attention and things like that. But I'm bitter. I just think, sod it, they're not experts. They shouldn't be portrayed as them. And it could still be called an ambassador without being a professor. A professor brings with it, doesn't it, a, a level of effort and expertise. Well, yes. I mean, the, the term gets abused in... Cre- I mean, one of the interesting things about universities now, especially London universities, is you've got all these ex-politicians, ex-ambassadors hanging about. You want to get them involved, and so yeah. everyone's inventing titles for them. Uh, professor in practice, professor of this or that. So the term is getting devalued a little bit. Do you feel sensitive about that as a professor? Do I sound sensitive? Uh, no, not at all. No, you sound, you sound like you've got a great deal of levity about it. I think sometimes academics are guilty of devaluing their own profession in the sense that we give these titles out, we let other people come and teach, and actually we've spent years learning a discipline, learning the methods, how you study that discipline and things like that, and it sometimes annoys me when some retired bod waltzes in and starts (laughs) teaching a course and you think, hang on a sec, you wouldn't like it if I waltzed in and started doing your job after I'd finished doing this one. Well, I suppose being a politician you could. You could just well, you'd have to get elected to if you wanted to be in the Commons. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's usually. I suppose it's usually quite. But a that's question not a profession, it. is it? That's not where a job where notionally you need to have had a certain amount of training or that's qualifications right. to do yeah. it. Yeah. Famously, you need it. absolutely none. Yeah. Um, <laughs> would you ever th- consider standing for Parliament? Yes, I think. I oh, mean, thank God you said that. Well, listen, I'm I'm a very untypical academic. So, I mean, to be autobiographical for a minute, I've kind of stopped being an academic since UK and a changing Europe. I'm basically a marketing man for social science. I go around talking about other people's research. Uh, and one of the best things for me of the last two or three years has been we did loads of public events around the referendum. Yeah. And I just realised how much I prefer talking to people in a pub about politics than talking to a seminar. I mean, I love it. Maybe Absolutely you just prefer being in a pub. Well, there is that. But all right, let's let's even a town hall. I mean, you're quite right. There is a pub element to this, absolutely. But uh, I just love talking to people about politics, especially when they disagree. Actually, I had a brilliant time. I I went up in I was in Newcastle about ten days before the referendum, and they did a question and answer thing in the centre of town in a pub, and about two hundred people turned up. I mean, yeah. the referendum was great for getting people interested. Let's not forget that. I yeah. mean, before the referendum, our our prime worry was apathy. And actually, all of a sudden, I remember, you know, getting trained around the country and hearing people talking about this. And I thought, this is fantastic. And, you know, the people were a bit drunk. The people were a bit angry. We had this Q&A. And I just thought, my God, this is fantastic. I it, loved it. I suppose in a way, we're joking about the pub, but you, politics has to go to where people are. And obviously, a lot of pubs are closing. But nevertheless, is there something to be said, actually, for more political events being a bit more informal and taking place in those places and not just during campaigns? No, absolutely. And there are two organisations I will plug here and now. One is called the Pint of Science, which organises events around the country where experts go and talk in pubs Great. to audiences. Uh, so that's happening in Oxford, actually, in a couple of weeks' time. And the other is there's an organisation called Skeptics in the Pub. Uh, not Eurosceptics, just Skeptics. And what they do, they have branches around the country. I talked to one up in the northeast somewhere... Uh, a couple of years ago, and they just get people to come in and they do discussions. Brilliant. That's fantastic. I'll be well up for going to some of them. Oh, that sounds much better. Because occasionally, when, when I was in the Labour Party, I'd go to Labour Party meetings at the pub. But I don't think that's the same thing, and that, I don't think it helped having alcohol poured onto kind of factional meetings. Well, my rec- my <laughs> decisions had to be taken, you know. My recollection of Labour Party meetings was that even alcohol wouldn't have livened them up because the procedural issues would have just killed off the joy of even a beer. 
Well, that's that's true of some. I mean, there are certain uh, local Labour parties that I shan't name that, oh, my word, it did, uh, it did not help, but it made things violent. Um, we will talk about UK and changing Europe, but let's deal with the book first, because it is a brilliant book, and it what it deals with is not just why it happened, but it deals with so many different threads, and it deals with the context of the referendum beyond just the campaign itself. There's this great phrase in there about the elite consensus. Now, we've talked to various people about it, and those of us interested in politics regularly talk about the, the fact that the two major parties over a period of time were were, were converging, we were coming mm -hmm. close together. The last election suggests perhaps that is going in the opposite direction. But to call it the elite consensus, is that the right phrase for it? Or are we falling into the trap there of framing it in an anti-politics way? I think it was both politics and anti-politics in a curious kind of way. We had, you know, people talk about the establishment. Now, it's used very, very loosely, but the fact of the matter is that around this broad group of people, whether it's businessmen or civil servants and the leaders of the big two parties, certainly, there was a consensus around the parameters of economic policy. I mean, I think we say in the book specifically, we're not for a moment saying David Cameron and Ed Miliband offered exactly the same thing, but yes. what we're saying is they both offered something that was recognisably a little bit similar. Yeah. Uh, and for those, and, and the point is that for those people that felt left out by this or damaged by it, there was no real way of expressing yourself. I mean, someone in Sunderland before the referendum said to me, this is different because elections don't matter around it. I mean, let's face it. I mean, she said, if they stuck a red rosette on a donkey, it'd win. So what's the point? I totally, totally understand. It was just about, I suppose, it, it, and the book unpicks these things, um, the anti-politics feeling that was there, that has been there for quite some time, and I suppose it's quite hard thinking of the last... In my lifetime, the poll, the minor strike, I was too young to remember, but it happened while I was alive, the minor strike, the poll tax. You know, when people talk about Iraq and MPs' expenses, I think, well, there were other things in my life that shook people's faith in politicians and the establishment. So it's not... Are we wrong to see it as, a, as an entirely modern, i.e. post-Blairite or Blairite and after phenomenon? Yeah, I think we probably are. We've been angry with politicians and politics for as long as I've been alive, which is a long time now. Uh, but I think the thing that was added from when Blair took over the Labour Party was this sense that there is now no choice. That actually they're both the same. They look identical. And that was true, as we say in the book, both when it comes to the sort of the left-right thing, economic policy, but also, and I think this is where Brexit became important, when it came to values. I mean, I know in your podcast you've talked to people like Rosie and Sarah yeah. about this thing, the sort of liberal authoritarian and on those indicators, the parties... I mean, it was the Tory party that legislated for gay marriage, for instance. So there's a perception out there. Remember, you know, significant part of our population isn't socially liberal, that felt excluded from a club that looked like it encompassed all the available political choices. Oh, that's a point you make in the, in the, in the book as well, that socially liberal policies of both the Labour Party and the Tory party alienated people. Is it true to say those people are predominantly working class? No, I don't think it's true at all. I mean, one of the things about values, and we saw this in the last election, if you think about it, is it cuts across your the groups you usually divide politics up into. Uh, so, no, it's not predominantly working class at all. It cuts across classes. It's a whole new divide, and that's actually one of the reasons why our parties are struggling now. Is I mean, if you look at the last election, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, you've talked about this before, that, you know, the Tories have Mansfield and Labour have Knights, uh, uh, Kensington. So at the next, next election... Does Labour try and hold on to Kensington, because that implies one set of policies? Yeah, yeah. Or does it try and hang desperately onto some of those northern seats where the Tories pushed them quite close last time? So both parties actually 
I think to a remarkable extent, are no longer certain who they represent. I can't tell you how relieved I am to to hear that it's not... that the, the evidence doesn't suggest that it's a working-class thing because one of my great fears coming out of the referendum and of this new political landscape has been... Maybe I'm being overly sensitive because of the background that I come from, but a creeping classism into some of the debate, the connection between education and the way people voted in the referendum... The divide on age as well, and a, a kind of... I know there's all sorts of issues with intergenerational unfairness that governments are rightly trying to... Parties, sorry, are, are trying to sort of redress. But I do I do worry in certain areas of social media and certain commentators that I think should know better, that there is a danger that we're looking down our noses at the feckless or the people that didn't go to university or the people that do particular jobs. So I suppose it's reassuring that actually these things cut across all parts of society. Well, there's a god-awful snobbery around on social media. Uh, yeah, which about is, everything, too. Yeah, about fair. everything, and in both directions. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's true. And I think people have been a bit lazy. I mean, Brexit was partly the left behind, but you've got to bear in mind the majority of people who voted Brexit were uh, Tory voters. It wasn't yes. the Labour left behind. Yeah. I mean, I talk about the left behind a lot because actually, insofar as I see that Brexit offers us opportunities, it's in recognising the stuff we did wrong. Uh, and I think, you know... If you have a vote on something and the, you know a majority vote in favour basically of taking a punt because no one knows what's going to happen next because they're unhappy with the status quo, what's your lesson from that? Your lesson is there's something very wrong with the status quo. Yes. Also, the lesson is never take a punt ever again. Well, maybe. I mean, actually, what I would say is, you know, since the referendum, we started talking about stuff that we should have been talking about ages ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the consequences, one of the happy consequences of the referendum for me is that the South has noticed the North. Now, <laughs> the South has noticed the North because, you know, the North has wrecked the, the South chances of sending its kids on Erasmus schemes, maybe. I mean, it might not be, you know, a particularly positive thing. But, you know, people are talking now about the fact that there's not enough investment in the North of England. You know, there's a serious conversation about should we have a, a trans-Pennine railway before we have Crossrail 75? I mean, you know... And I think in that sense, we've got a far, far healthier political debate in some ways. Now, there are all sorts of counter-arguments, like, but politics is broken and nothing's getting done, which is true. But I do take some comfort from the fact that we are having a far better, or a far bigger range of issues are now included in our political debate than they were before the referendum. That kind of goes against, uh, the maybe not the received wisdom, but certainly the, the, the theme of the time, which is that actually Brexit has consumed everything else and that... All we're talking about is Brexit, that it that it's taken up the bandwidth of the government, that it's the only issue, really, that's going on in British politics. Actually, you're, you're saying that what out there it's different, that the public have a different view? I'm saying the nature of political debate has changed. Now, you're quite right in the sense that government is obsessed with Brexit and can't do much apart from Brexit. So I'm not saying for a moment that these problems that we are now talking about are going to be resolved, because I don't think the government has the bandwidth to do it. But I do think... You know, and this is a medium-term thing for me. Yeah. This isn't something I think, oh, we're going to solve the North-South divide in the next couple of years, but it is now on the agenda. I think it's up to people to actually... You know, you asked me earlier about politics. It's one of the reasons why I'm actually interested in getting involved in politics now is I just think there's not been a moment like this where everything is to play for in our political debate. Yes. I mean, that's, I suppose there's something thrilling and exciting about that. Yeah, absolutely. And is that... Are you, are you, are you an optimist trying to find a sort of sliver of hope? Is that where that comes from, or, or, or no? Or but actually, I, but does I, this I, present genuine opportunities for, I'm guessing, progressive people? No, I think by temperament, I'm a glass totally empty sort of guy. <laughs> right. So this is odd for me 
but, you know, the whole referendum left me profoundly divided. I mean, the town I grew up in voted overwhelmingly to leave and the town I live in voted overwhelmingly to remain. And I felt that division inside me. But I do think mm. that, you know, there's part of me that looks at my school friends who voted leave up in Wakefield and thinks you've made yourself heard. Good for you. Now, something needs to be done about it. But are you... I get that. But it's so hard when you see the evidence we have so far. They may have made themselves heard, but they're more than likely going to make themselves worse off as well. Mm -hmm. Is that a price worth paying? Well, that's for each person, I suppose, to judge. What I would say, though, is if, you know, hypothetically, if in 10 years' time after we've left the European Union, which we probably, though not certainly, will, if the British economy is noticeably smaller but noticeably fairer, I'd take that as an outcome. Uh, right. I don't know what party you would stand for, but you would be electoral dynamite because <laughs> literally you you have you have squared the circle there. Like either party. But would I know you say you. this every week. No, but it's <laughs> but it's true every week. But it's true every week. I'm just very lucky that I get great people on. But to find effectively, you know, you are you are you're straddling both sides of the debate there, aren't you? You're you're recognising the positives that come out of it, but you're well, I mean, look, hand on sense. heart, one of the frustrations of this, and it, I mean, it's been a frustration every now and again, is that the UK in a changing Europe is paid for out of uh, public money. We're not allowed to take sides. So I can't sit here and tell you how I voted or anything like that. We mm. have to be impartial on the Brexit debate. But I think, you know, just it, it's made me do something that temperamentally before, temperamentally beforehand, I was tribal, bitter, angry... <laughs> Unable to accept that anyone I argued with had a point, yeah. wanting to punch them in the head. And actually, this has made me sort of take a deep breath and listen. Uh, and one of the things I do genuinely think, and I am genuinely excited about, is, you know, Brexit has changed the debate. We're talking a little bit about devolution. You know, should we have metro mayors? Should Yorkshire have a mayor? Should they have more fiscal autonomy to, to be able to decide on their spending priorities themselves? Those are really important debates. But we'd had them before, hadn't we? We'd, we'd Scottish and Welsh devolution took place in the 90s. We'd had a referendum in the north-east for a mayor that got rejected. We had some... I've worked for an elected mayor in Stoke-on-Trent, so the devolution debate's always been there. I mean, uh, do you think it's been supercharged? I think it's got a real urgency about it now, yeah. to be honest. Uh, I just sense that people are talking about it more seriously than actually Brexit has made us all step back and reflect on the nature of the country uh, we live in. I mean, Brexit has taught us about our country, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, the people who say, oh my God, Brexit has made us so divided and so nasty and so xenophobic, to those people I'd say, no, Brexit has made you realise yes. what your country is like. And countries are always divided. It's just about what the division is and when and the, the nature of the divide and the depth of it. And the levels of anger. And I suppose, yeah. you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're not alone in this. The French French society is as divided as our society. They just happen to have an electoral system that is so effectively rigged that the extremist candidate isn't going to win in the second round. Well, yeah, now, but we had a referendum. candidates do get to the second round. You know, so they, they, still, they still have a scenario where they have on offer in a two-horse race... Yeah, an extremist. So there's still, you know, there's still but, have issues. But the system was designed to push push outcomes towards the centre, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was designed to make all self-respecting yeah. centrists look at the choice they're presented with, and even if it's a political opponent, vote for the moderate absolutely. over the extremist. So Which it, explains the career of Jacques Chirac, if nothing else. No, no, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> there are many ways of explaining the career of Jacques Chirac. <laughs> this takes me back to my youth when I used to study French politics. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could do an entire podcast on the. Um, the nature of the man. Um, I, I wonder if this this uh, urgency around 
regionalism or devolution or whatever word you want to give it, actually is perhaps even more specific to England because a sense of Englishness and English identity. We touched on this in in other uh, in other in, in other interviews, but that drive towards regionalism rather than the campaign for an English Parliament is that where the English sort of devolution settlement is, is that people would actually rather it come to their city or their region rather than to England as a whole? Yeah, I mean, some people would. And I think what the referendum has taught us is that there might be an English problem. Yeah. Uh, and we might have to find a way of dealing with that English problem. Was it Rosie Campbell's dad you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh. But, yeah, the uh, campaign for the English yeah, Parliament. Yeah, absolutely. And... You know, there are issues here. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a debate going about whether Yorkshire is a place or not, you know, with an identity of its own that's quite an interesting one. But this notion that England is massive and actually to govern and, and divided and that actually the only way to govern it effectively is to give some of the parts more ability to make their own decisions. And actually, one of the, we've got test cases now, haven't we? We've got the West Midlands and we've got Greater Manchester. Yes. And there is some initial academic evidence that shows that they did better out of the last budget than you might have expected had they not had mayors. I, having a cohesive political leadership for a region allows it to make its, make its case to central government more persuasively than if you didn't. And it increases accountability, if nothing else. I yeah. mean, more people can tell you who their local elected mayor is or their metro mayor than they could the leader of a council. Yeah, and it breeds... I mean, there's a sort of chicken and egg thing about this question of identity I was talking about with Yorkshire. I mean, Londoners became Londoners the way they are now, partly because they had a mayor. Yes. So it wasn't that, you know, you had a mayor over a pre-existing uh, identity, but having a mayor sort of feeds that process, I think. It absolutely does. Um, th- there's a part in your book where you talk about, I suppose devolution isn't the right word, um, but the way that political decisions were taken out of the hands of politicians, so things like independence of the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. And actually that has helped create, I- in a way, uh, the sense that they're all the same, because a lot of the big decisions aren't taken by politicians. Is that a contradiction to the values of devolution, that if you get power out away from, say, Westminster politicians specifically, that the, the side effect can be that there's a perception that actually these politicians don't matter at all? Or is it about who you give the power to? And if, if those powers were yeah. devolved more locally to, to perhaps more identifiably local places, then that cynicism wouldn't breed in the same way. Well, I think the key is that you're giving powers to people that you elect, you yeah. feel you have some control over. That's the crucial thing. And actually, the, the Bank of England has recognised that there might be an issue here. The, uh, the chief economist at the Bank of England is this great guy called uh, Andy Haldane, who you should try and get on, actually. Do you know him? Uh, yeah. I can, yeah. Well, if you could he's, put in a word, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. He's, oh, a, thank he's you. an absolute star. But one of the things the Bank of England has done recently is set up, I think they're called citizens' juries. The Bank of England has regional officers. That's right. And they're having these, they're setting up these citizens' juries so that the bank in those regions can talk to real people. Uh, you know, Andy Haldane the other day gave a speech which was fascinating, and he was saying that actually... One of the things that economists struggle with is measuring consumer confidence, OK? Because everyone, yeah. one of the reasons why the Treasury short-term forecasts about Brexit were wrong is because they assumed that if we voted to leave, everyone would, like, stop spending money overnight. And, of course, the English went down and spent loads of money <laughs> instead. So yeah. the predictions were wrong. And he said, actually, the better way to do it, rather than looking at the usual indicators, is to look at Spotify downloads because there are ways of tracking those in such a way as to get an insight into the mood of people from the music they're down. I always thought that was fascinating. And it's actually, you know, it's part of what I was talking about. We just, this this situation we found ourselves in has driven us to think about things in a new way. But do you mean that if people are downloading Radiohead that they've lost confidence in the economy and if they're listening to, I don't know, Natasha Bedingfield, they're feeling better? 
But I think if they're downloading Radiohead, they have good taste. It's the first <laughs> and obvious lesson you learn from that. But uh, it's worth. I, I, I skimmed the speech. I haven't read it in detail, I must say. But I, I sort of, you know, I've got it there on my pile of things to read because I just thought it's really interesting that the Bank of England is trying to be proactive about this and saying, how do we learn? But does he mean like the number of downloads, or does he mean the type of music that people are listening? I to? I shall refer you to the speech. Because <laughs> I, should, I should have read it carefully before I came on if I was going to mention it. But again, uh, real political skills there. Oh, no. I refer to you the speech. It's not for me to answer questions on other people's behalf. Um, one of the great things that you... And I suppose we're jumping around here, but a thing that really resonated for me in your, in your book is you say Labour stopped talking about the working class. Yeah. They stopped talking about families, and hard-working families in particular. That phrase drove me mad. Mm-hmm. Hard-working, working hard for hard-working families and all that. And it became a joke in the end. Do you think that was Labour? And I never thought about it in the way that I had until I read your book. Was that Labour trying to say working class in a different way. No, I think it was Labour broadening its appeal. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You need to broaden your appeal to win elections. And I think Tony Blair saw that. And let's face it, he did fantastically well. He won three elections for the Labour Party, and that was his job. Yeah. Uh, I think it's easy to forget that nowadays, but, you know... Some of us haven't. Of, yeah, he did that <laughs> bit of his job quite well. Uh, I think it was them trying to expand their appeal. Uh, and it worked. The only... The only issue is if you end up, as we argue in the book, with a parliament that's full of middle class people talking about middle class things, using middle class language, you get divorced, you get separated from the issues of your base. There's a fantastic book about America called Listen Liberal by Thomas Frank. And he talks about how the Democratic Party lost its base. And he wrote it before the Trump election, mm. but basically it helps explain the. And he says, you know, the Democratic Party went off having dinners with tech giants and talking about innovation and all these wonderful things. And it made them feel good and it expanded their base. What they forgot was that their traditional supporters got a bit hacked off with this because no one was talking about how do we give these people jobs? How do we give their children futures and prospects? And I think something very, very similar happened here. There were parts of the country where, if you were a kid, your prospects were pretty bleak. Uh, And I think, you know, New Labour is partly, by no means solely, but partly responsible for that. As a defender of the... um the new Labour government. And on the day that we speak, uh, not on the day that people listen, it's 20, 21 years to the day, the mm-hmm. 1st of May we record this, since Tony Blair won the first of three uh, historic elections. Um, Were you born ma- then? I, I was 14, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Right, okay, most, people, most people think I'm older, so... Um, <laughs> I just assume I get... everyone's ridiculously and annoyingly young. Oh, but you've got the... See, again, great political skills. Oh, flattery. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, it was, we're getting a real <laughs> showcase here. Um... How much of that was about turn then? Because I would say, as a defender of those years, the, the government I supported tipped money into schools and hospitals, mm-hmm. opened sure start centres, mm-hmm. was socially liberal, um, it gave people tax credits and a minimum wage, pre- protection at work, protection for part-time workers, delivered loads for workers. Was it just that, actually, they didn't talk about it much and it was a communication issue, or perhaps the phrases they were using, things like hard-working families, felt exclusive to other sectors? I'd say a couple of things. I think certainly in the first term and to a degree throughout, Tony Blair's party were guilty of what I'd call surreptitious social democracy. That's to say they did it, but they didn't brag about it. They were almost scared to talk about it. And actually, if you really want to leave a legacy, that legacy has to be changing hearts and minds. Not just doing the right stuff, and I think they did loads of really good stuff, but actually convincing people that... You know, what they failed to do ultimately, I think, was convince people that a fairer society is better for everyone. It's not just better for the people you're helping, but it's better for the country because actually a kid from a sink estate 
who might be a genius, if you do it right, could go to university and have prosper and help the country as a whole. So I think they fail to get that message across quite as strongly as maybe they could have done. And the second thing, take education, for instance, it was disproportionately piled into London. I mean, you see this in London school results now. But if you read any of a number of reports, the report from the Children's Commissioner a couple of months ago, I mean, the most depressing thing was, I think the figure was something like, if you're a kid in Hackney, you've got a 50% chance of going to university. If you're a kid in some other parts of particularly the North, your chances are sort of in the teens. And that is an indictment. It is indeed. Um, you talk in the book about detachment and disinterest and a, a fall in turnout, party membership, a fall in people identifying with political parties. I suppose this comes back to something you said earlier, but do you think the referendum ha- set us on a slightly different course? Do you think the referendum, and not just that, but to be fair to him, Corbyn... And now is now uh, getting will drive higher turnouts in the future. Will uh, well, I mean, he's demonstrably increased party turn party membership membership, in his own party. But do you think actually we're now living in an era where these things will be reversed, where we'll see higher turnouts and people identifying with politics more and wanting to get involved more? I hope so. I mean, who knows? I mean, our politics is so unpredictable. But my sense is that when there is a genuine ideological battle going on, two things happen. Firstly, third parties get squeezed. So we saw that with UKIP and the Lib Dems and the Green Party at the last election. When there's real action between the two big parties, then everyone wants to take part in that fight. And secondly, I hope that that provokes interest. I mean, one of the most interesting and depressing things I heard around the time of the last election was with about a couple of weeks to go, Nick Robinson on Radio 4 did a uh, series of focus groups, I think from Halifax, from memory. And I remember it was a couple of weeks before the election and he went up there and he said, so you know this uh, phrase, strong and stable? You know, and of course, people who followed politics by the, by then, whenever they heard strong and stable, sort of broke out into a rash because it was getting so boring. You know, what do you make of this phrase? None of the 12 had heard it. Yeah. So I think it is impossible to exaggerate the degree <laughs> to which some people just do not think about these things. I totally agree. But I, I, I just wonder if... My big, my big concern always is that big ideological divides are seen as necessarily a good thing. And I've never been convinced that they absolutely are. I, I know the benefits of them. It does drive interest. There's a sense that there's a fight on. Is it actually any good, do you think? For for me, politics is about changing people's lives for the better. Policy that actually leads to outcomes. Does a greater ideological divide make that any more likely that you would change people's lives for the better? I don't know, to be honest. I, I think... I realise that's a big much, question. I think too much flaccid centrism has dangerous consequences, and we saw them, which is that you get technocracy, you get jargon-ridden politics, you get that sort of managerialism that crept into our politics and made it dull, okay, and impenetrable, uh, but also made it very, very path-dependent, to use that phrase, in the sense that, you know, there was a narrow range of issues that people messed about with without thinking about the big picture. And I think if you were left out of that, like that kid in that sink estate who's got very little chance of going on to university, then actually nothing was going to change. So I think... We're having a reset moment now. I don't think we can go on like this forever. It's too febrile. It's just too nasty politics at the moment. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we're having a reset. And remember, it's worth pointing out, because people seem to forget this a lot, that Corbyn predates the referendum. Absolutely. A surprising number of people seem to think that one of the impacts of the referendum was, you know, extremism in the Labour Party in the form of Corbyn. But actually, (laughs) the the pushback had started before the referendum. But I think it it was a symptom of the same thing in some ways. Oh, absolutely it is, yeah. And it's, I suppose what's interesting with Corbyn is that after that referendum, 
which was seen as a reaction on the right, although that's not necessarily the right way to, to diagnose it, that Corbyn is a, is a reaction of a similar feeling on the left. But a lot of the people who like Corbyn will have voted to leave. Corbyn yeah. himself might have done. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, his records suggest... I talk to people about this. Until that referendum, he'd voted against the EU in every every opportunity he'd ever, uh, he'd ever had. The idea that he had a last-minute conversion, I find a real... I struggle to believe that he voted to remain. Well, I mean, I think you need to know him, and I don't, yeah. to have an opinion on that. But uh, it's certainly the case that, you know, 30-odd percent of Labour voters voted to leave. And I remember a poll that was taken about two or three weeks before the referendum where I think one in five Labour voters didn't know the Labour Party's position on Brexit, which I thought was revealing. And, you know, having George Osborne stand up there and say, why would you want to change the current economy? <laughs> Wasn't a guaranteed way of uh, no. you know, getting those Labour people out, out to vote or to vote for Remain. No, that's very true. Uh, you, you talk about the campaign in your book and obviously... It's stuff that a lot of people reminisce over and pour over. Boris Johnson is seen, uh, perhaps rightly so, as being a highly influential figure in that campaign, and which way he backed would have made a real difference when Cameron was coming back with his deal. Had Boris backed Remain, do you think Remain would have won? Quite possibly, yes. Uh, I mean, it's impossible to know, but but he is one of those Heineken politicians, isn't yeah. he? That, you know, he has a certain reach, he has a certain appeal, he has a turn of phrase. If you remember that last debate where he ended on Independence Day, yeah. I think he has a... And, and, the, and the media love him. Yeah. So he gets that traction. Uh, I certainly think that had had he and Gove not decided to back leave, chances are Remain would have done significantly better if not one. I mean, it's very, very hard to know. I mean, there are, there are two things. I'm torn between two arguments in the book. One is it was important those people won over. The other is actually if you look at the polling... Very few people change their minds during yes. the campaign itself. But I think the real success of Leave was getting people out to vote. You know, I think the figure is a staggering figure. 2.8 million people voted in 2016 who hadn't voted in 2015, uh, which is remarkable if you think about it. You go into detail about some of the areas that, that voted and how they voted. There's a great fact in there, and I'll just read it out as it appears in the book. Sophisticated area-level analyses have found that those areas that had experienced a recent influx of migrants from the countries that joined the EU in 2004 and 2007 were more likely to vote leave. Interestingly, those where similar increases had occurred from other countries were not. Yeah, I mean, there was... I mean, one of the interesting things about the data is if you look at opinions on immigration, it tracks the rise in immigration. I mean, there is it's not just blind prejudice. There is some connection here. I mean, there are lots of debates around it amongst political scientists as to why this happens. But it certainly seems to be the case that places where even a relatively small number of immigrants came in... I mean, the places with most immigrants voted remain. That's right. And that's why this stat is so... This fact yeah. is so fascinating. It's, it's change over time. Yeah. It's the rapidity of change. I mean, I remember one of the most interesting and moving in some ways experiences I had was we went to Spalding in South oh, Lincolnshire. Oh, Lincolnshire. Crack uh, up into Spalding. And we were there probably about a month before the referendum. We did a town hall event. Uh, and I've got this fantastic colleague called Jonathan Porters who knows everything there's ever been to know about immigration and was coming out with the aggregate figures. And one woman just stood up and said, look, the thing about Spalding is over the summer months, the population of this town trebles yeah. and you can't get to see a GP. There's nothing made up about that. I mean, that's... A, now, yeah. you can argue quite legitimately about whether the answer is to leave the EU or, I don't know, build another GP surgery <laughs> in Spalding. Exactly. It strikes me that the latter would be easier and cheaper. But, yeah. you know, there were genuine discontents. What we don't know, and I think political scientists argue about this, is whether 
anti-immigrant feeling is basically economic or cultural stroke identity. I mean, John Curtis, the great John Curtis, yeah. always tells this story about a bloke, I think he calls him Mike. I think he's always called Mike. Anyway, imagine this bloke called Mike who works in a hotel in the east of England. He's worked there for 40 years and he's always loved it and he used to always look forward to Monday morning because he'd go in and at tea time they'd sit around and talk about the football and what had been on the telly and stuff like that. Mike is now miserable because he's the only person at coffee time who doesn't speak Polish. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's that sort of cultural explanation of it and then there's the sort of resources, public services, jobs, wages explanation of it and no one's quite certain... But we do know they interact, obviously. Because areas where there's high levels of immigration, London obviously is the one that everyone mm -hmm. talks about. London's a, the most multicultural city in the UK. You can argue about how multicultural it is at a local level and where people live and where they work and all those sort of things. But this huge centre of the world that, that exists in the UK, that exists in England, voted to remain, and all these places that are white basically voted to leave. But actually, it, it, I suppose what you're saying is it's slightly more complex than that. Oh, it's a lot more complex than that. And there's some wonderful voting patterns you see from the local data from London, which is, you know, some of the western parts of London. It looks like quite a lot of the immigrant, which potentially means Indian community, voted leave for whatever reason, uh, amongst some of them that I've spoken to, to stop immigration, ironically yeah. enough. Uh, but, yeah, it's a very mixed picture. And we, we should not lose from sight either the fact that in a place that voted 70-30 one way or the other... 30% is an awful lot of people. We sort of dismiss the fact. Yeah. So, I, mean, the, I mean, the simple conclusion of the referendum is the country is split down the middle. Yeah. It still is, and it was then. That's, a re that's quite a nice way of thinking about it. I mean, it, it, on, a, on a bigger scale, I always think of Nicola Sturgeon's position is 40% of people in Scotland voted to leave. And yet that's kind of been, well, Scotland voted to stay, and obviously by a significant margin. And if I lived in Scotland, I would have been very proud of that margin. Um, but nevertheless, 40% of people in Scotland do want to leave the European Union. That that represents a political challenge to Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? It's all A lot boils down to how you interpret numbers. So one of the things, you take the Remain campaign. Yeah. David Cameron and co. came away from the Scottish referendum saying, that's how you win stuff. Yeah, yeah. Project fear. It always works. They'd squandered a... A 25-point yes. lead yeah, in the yeah, polls. Yeah. I mean, it was only 5% the Scottish referendum. So you could look at that two ways. You could look at it either, we won, which is how they did, or, yeah. bloody hell, that was closer than it should have been. What did we yes. do wrong? Which would probably have been a wiser way of looking at it and might have given them pause before they devised their Remain campaign. One thing that isn't touched upon in the book because of when it was published, published last year, um, obviously still very, very uh, current up to date, is Cambridge, Analyt uh, Cambridge Analytica and what role they played. I am naturally sceptical at the significance of Cambridge Analytica and perhaps I'm wrong, but just from a political background where most political messages are frankly ignored and, as you say, you go up north and tell people about strong and stable, they haven't realised the message. I realise things are more significant and more sophisticated now. But do you think Cambridge Analytica can have the sort of influence that the legend building around them suggests that they could have? You see, the problem with this, this is like inviting me on to talk about rocket science. <laughs> I mean, you're asking me to talk about algorithms and things I don't even understand what they are, let alone how they work. So, I, I mean, but this might I share a big your... part of your work now, would it? Yeah, but I retire soon. Uh, <laughs> you're too young to retire. Oh, no, no, no. Countdown has begun. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I share your scepticism. I mean, it strikes me as slightly impolite about people that a Facebook ad or series of ads makes them change their political views. Yeah. Uh, I share that scepticism. I mean, my Facebook feed, I would vote for the slipper party, I suppose, because that's the only <laughs> thing that appears on my Facebook feed, 
Slippers. Slippers. Are you a slipper enthusiast? No, not in any way. I cannot think of what I possibly... I mean, I think it must be an age thing. It must be an age thing. I'm 52. Maybe 52 is when you start wearing slippers. I don't know. But... Slippers dominate my. But I, I don't know if you've. I don't know if you've done this <laughs> on Facebook. Seen an advert for slippers. Oh well. But I'm know. not on Facebook either. Oh, aren't you? Well, I mean, right. I I mess about now with Facebook, and it's quite interesting. So I like ah. deliberately really unpleasant things, just to watch what happens. When you say really unpleasant, well, English Defence League or stuff like that. I just yeah. click on like just to see what what happens, and it does change things a bit. But I'm a little bit sceptical about how how much impact this has on people's views. But to be honest, I don't know. It does seem to me that it was on an industrial scale in the United States, certainly. Uh, So the English Defence League buy a lot of slippers. Well, yeah, it's a curious one. (laughs) It's a very, very curious one. I don't know. I mean, if you... But these aren't any old slippers. These are revolutionary slippers. What sort of... I've never clicked on the link, (laughs) but I can tell you. There's a tantalising fact in your book where you say that one of the authors who you co-author, Jeffrey Evans. One of the authors put £1,100 bet on that Remain would win. Can you tell us which author it was? Well, I think from looking at my scruffy jumper, you can hazard a guess as to which one of us had 1100 quid to uh, splash on a bet, can't you? <laughs> I well, I haven't seen his jumper or his <laughs> slippers. Oh, he's a very smart boy, Jeff. Jeff is actually, I mean, he's someone you should talk to. I'd love to have him on. He's, he's from Stoke. Uh, oh, he well, goes back to Stoke to watch the football. God help him. Port Vale uh, or Stoke City? Stoke City. Okay, that's slightly better. Uh, it's horrible. And uh, he's 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 got a very very odd background for a political <laughs> scientist. You know, grew up in the potteries, left school at sixteen, uh, and he's a very very interesting bloke. And I'd encourage you to have him on. Oh, I'd love to have him on. And any any recommendations, I guess, would be um, would be greatly received. We talked at the start. He's not uh, as charming as me. Oh, very few now. people are. Very few people are. Uh, about your work with the UK and a change in Europe, and you, the money comes from the Economic and Social Research Council, which comes through what was Biz and is now Bees, Bees or Beast or whatever yeah. it's called. Um, so, in terms of the work that it does, and uh, there's some great videos out there of you and Nigel Farage and you and Tony Blair. Um, what is the role of UK in a change in Europe? Well, it's interesting. We were set up. And basically, the role is quite simple. It is letters. There's lo- there's loads of social scientists, as you know, out there doing work on things related to Brexit. And our job is to take that research and let as many people know about it as possible. So we work with the political parties, we work with civil servants, we do public events, and it's just to say, actually, this is what the research says. You make up your own mind, but there are people who've spent their lives working on fisheries policy and this is what they say about what Brexit's going to mean for fisheries so it's, it's in a sense I'm a travelling salesman for the social sciences now but was this triggered by the government when they called the referendum to say actually we need to make sure there's academic <laughs> research out there to inform both sides what's the what's the history of the organisation and well, where did the idea come from well the idea came from the fact that they did something very very similar in Scotland for the Scottish referendum and they set up a small unit based in Edinburgh University that was remarkably successful in informing the debate. They, they did an e-book, that project, and I think it had eighty or 90,000 downloads, which wow. was something that an academic institution is producing is, is a staggering amount. And so when the Brexit referendum well, appeared to be on the horizon, I mean, I was appointed, I think, in February 2015, so a different world. I mean, it was before Cameron had won the election, let alone before they'd called the referendum. They just said, look, there might be a referendum coming up. It will be good to start thinking about what the social science is and how to put it out there so the public can know what social scientists say. And actually, the SLC very early on said you have to be impartial, and a few of 
few people in our team sort of didn't like that. But it turned out to be an absolute gift because we got quite a decent profile in the media and stuff just because people came to us because they didn't know, you know, which way we went on this. The website is fantastic. It's one of the best resources for information on the European Union. But it is superb. The facts section where it's broken down by, you know, economic or social, whatever it is, and then just the questions that people are asking with really clear, relatively short answers on there. Yeah, I'm a bit embarrassed now because I remember our comms guy saying we should have a fact section and I said, oh, what a waste of bloody time. We should have more blogs. So <laughs> No, 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 he was absolutely <laughs> right. Make sure they never listen to this. Uh, there is some... There is some. Now, I just want to check that I'm getting the right end of the stick on some of the things that are on there. There's a phrase on there on the website that says, to date, social scientific research dealing with the relationship between the UK and the EU has not achieved the resonance amongst key non-academic stakeholders that it should, uh, which... It's probably hard to disagree with. When you say non-academic stakeholders, are you talking about politicians? Are you talking about the public? Because it's quite a broad, quite I, a broad area. I feel I, I have to explain myself now. Firstly, that's not how I write normally. <laughs> that was actually a sentence taken from my application to get this job. All right, so that's ESRC speak. That's just me being canny with a grant giver rather than that, how I talk. I want to make that clear. I don't say stakeholder. Because it, right. it sounds very new no, no, neighbor, absolutely. technocratic. It can mean anything you want it to mean. It's yeah. perfect. But anyway, what, what, what I meant, we have this debate all the time in the office. Who are we trying to speak to? It's very, very hard to speak to the general public. Yeah. Uh, especially if you haven't got a sort of national profile. We do that a bit through the media. But so we work with the media. We work with we work with all political parties. We do briefings for them. We do briefings for the civil service. We work with individual businesses, business organisations. Uh, we, I mean, we're a resource. Basically, I want people to come to us and say, "Look, can you come and talk to us about the implications of Brexit for A, B, or C?" And we'll gladly do it. We've done reports on the NHS recently, Brexit and the NHS. We do stuff on public opinion. We've got, as I said, a team who works on fisheries, one that does agriculture. How hard is it within those? remits to not say well it's a disaster i mean from where you sit now are there areas of brexit that actually will have a positive impact well look i don't i mean one of the things we've learned is whilst we shouldn't go around saying we're pro or anti-brexit we shouldn't be shy about saying what the evidence is yeah uh, and all the serious economic evidence points to the fact that the kind of brexit we seem to be aiming at or the government seems to be aiming at is going to have a damaging impact on the economy. So the economy will be smaller than it will otherwise be. There's an interesting conversation to be had about, A, who will notice and when, and B, what will they blame for it? Because mm. I don't think the answer is as straightforward as a lot of Remainers think. Uh, but we put forward the evidence, so we don't care who it annoys. I think, And I think we now have a self-confidence we didn't have when we were first set up, that actually I'm perfectly happy to go out there. I mean, my Twitter feed is just full of abuse that both sides of the debate hate me. Yeah. Uh, and they accuse me of belonging to the other side, and that's... Absolutely fine by me, but anyway, that's kind of a badge of honour, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it was. I, I have to say, you know, and this isn't just me being tacky, but I think it is worth saying that the ESRC should be thanked for funding us and for being brave enough to fund us, because at the time when they were thinking about it, it wasn't obvious that a public research body should fund something that is quite as politically explosive as Brexit. It's fantastic. The, the 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 website alone. And the YouTube channel alone are such a great resource of information and high-quality information, which I think both, you know, I think so many people feel was missing during the referendum. Uh, indeed, 
uh, these may be your words as well. The referendum did not herald an era of rational research-based debate. Rather, it's provoked hostility and deep division in our country. Finding the space to provide knowledge was not easy, nor was finding an audience willing to listen. That's, that's almost Dickensian, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, it, I think that's how a lot of people feel about it, that it was a divisive, emotional, raw experience to go through. Oh, yeah, absolutely was. But, I mean, you talked about this. I, I, can't, I think it was with Rosie, but... About the whole Michael Gove thing and experts, I don't think that had as much cut through as people claim. No, and, and, he, and he was taken out of context because he was talking about he was talking about the IMF and places. He was yeah. he had specific organisations in mind. But my experience of doing these things around the country is that people are desperate to find stuff out. They'll yeah, come along and they'll totally ask questions agree. and they really want to hear. I don't think it's true that people don't listen. I think people are cynical, and this goes back to what we were saying right at the start about the establishment. I think people have a pretty good radar for. people people saying things that are in their interests because it suits them. Uh, But I think in general, if you're an academic and you turn up and say, look, I've got no axe to grind, have you got any questions? They'll come along and they'll listen to what you say. Because there is an experts area on your website. Is that a deliberate nod to that Gove line rather than saying staff or personnel? I'd love us to be that kind. (laughs) Uh, I think it's because we thought research sounds a bit more dull, basically. And people should be recognised as experts. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, actually not me anymore, because I mean, I don't really do research anymore because I run this organisation, but some of our teams are just brilliant. I mean, they're people who have devoted literally their working lives to researching certain themes and know everything about it. Which is thrilling, and I think that's thrilling for an audience to listen to someone who really knows their stuff. I, I think in terms of... Oh, this is going to sound so sad... In terms of entertainment, I think there's a real thrill to listening to someone who really knows tell you over an hour or so. I mean, that's what this podcast is aiming to do by having you here, is to to get the benefit of your expertise. I think there's something entertaining about it. No, I I enjoy it. I mean, you know, if I can grovel back to you, I really enjoy your podcast and I listen to it. Uh, And I think, I mean, there are several things about it. One is it's informative and interesting and entertaining, but two it pays to listen for a bit longer than we're used to listening to these days. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Don't just give it a 30-second video on YouTube. No. That's not going to work. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that when we do our stuff around the country, people will come over and say, wow, I didn't, re- I didn't expect that to be interesting or enjoyable. And actually, I'm going to go look at your website now. It's a great website. I mean, in a way, do you exist purely to, to add academic research? Or are you kind of wittingly or unwittingly shaping the debate in a particular way? I mean, how do you decide what areas to cover? Well, I mean, you're giving us far too much credit. I don't think we're in any position to shape the debate, to be honest. Uh, well, our, our researchers are chosen through a normal academic competitive process in the sense that if you want money from us, you apply. Uh, people are interviewed. People are selected on the basis of a variety of things. And actually, one of the things that makes us a bit different is... Academic excellence is obviously up there. You've got to be very, very good. But we also look at the ability of people to communicate because, you know, Lord knows there are academics who could make an interesting subject seem boring. Okay, yeah. uh, So you, you have to be able to talk about it and you have to be willing to talk about it. So all our people get media training, for instance, where they're, they're, they're you know, taught how to go about doing an interview on the radio or on the telly, how to make it interesting, how to get the important points across. Because... You know, academics historically haven't been very good at communicating. Yeah. Uh, you know, and actually some, you know, in my own discipline of political science, I get one of the reasons why I'm sort of drifting away from academia myself is 
I just get frustrated by the jargon. And sometimes <laughs> that jargon is almost there to ensure no one reads the bleeding thing, which seems to me to be contrary to the whole purpose of it. Well, I totally agree. Um, I suppose what I mean is, in terms of the, the papers that you will do or the events that you do, I suppose you get commissioned by people to do work. Uh, not you, paid or? commission, no. no. Uh, I mean, we so how some... do you decide to say, right, we'll do a paper on fisheries in March? Well, we have these teams. I mean, my job is a bit like herding cats. We've got these twenty odd teams around the country. They do whatever the hell they like, but occasionally we'll ring them up and say, look, it would be. So when we did our NHS report, we had an idea and thought, why don't we try and do something on the NHS and Brexit? So we rang that team and we said, can you write the kernel of it? We've got people in Northern Ireland who can talk a bit about the cross-border issues. We've got experts on immigration. We've got. Uh, we've got a team from the Institute for Fiscal Studies who do budgetary stuff. So if we put them all together, we can actually do quite a nice report that tackles all the issues. So, I mean, there's a very small office in King's. There are about six or seven of us, and we sort of sit around brainstorming and say, would it be good to do... So we've just decided to do a whole series of pieces on the island of Ireland, for instance, that yeah. we'll bring out towards the end of May. Great. Uh, so it's partly what the teams themselves were doing and have said they'll do in their applications. It's partly us trying to bring them together in various combinations to, to bring out something a bit bigger, maybe. In terms of your events, can anyone just turn up to them? Yeah, absolutely. Probably. So, 22nd of May, we've got an event on Brexit and the island of Ireland that's being held in Westminster. You can go to the website, just sign on to it. For free? Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. Well, no, we're not allowed to charge. We're not a business. Yeah, but you could still raise some of your money. But, I mean, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, no. I mean... Sell some merch. That's what you want to do. Absolutely. Get some merch. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Get some tote bags and mugs made up. Actually, we did get... We did a, we did a pub quiz pub quiz last uh, Christmas and I think we had seven mugs. How did you done. do? Just uh, on your I, team? I, I, just, I just inserted <laughs> loads of questions about football into the quiz and it's really hacked people off. Um, the, I just wanted to get this right before I asked. On your biography at, at King's oh. College, it, it says your, your work is partly funded by, is it the Department for War Studies? No, no, no. There is a Department of War Studies at King's College. I yeah. Mean, I mean, King's is a very messy and very complicated place, and I'm, I have a home in several different departments, and war studies is one of them. And is that, I mean, is that does is Brexit a war? I mean, is that does that well, inform this current one? No, no, no. And the link is that before I started on this Brexit journey of mine, to sound a bit X Factory, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a specialist in international relations. Uh, you know. What has happened to me over the last few years still surprises me. I used to be one of those people who thought I will do anything but study British politics. I mean, British politics for me was Vernon Bogdanor talking about the Privy Council. And yeah. it's like, great, not interested. Oh, Nothing ever that. happens, you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden I've been put into this position where, I mean, you know, I'm no expert on British politics. The people you've had on this podcast before me really are. People like Roger Scully or Rosie or Sarah Charles know their stuff. I'm a, I'm a blagger, basically. <laughs> But I've had to sort of learn because we've been thrown into the middle of this thing yeah, where we're having to talk about Brexit. So I've been on a very, very steep learning curve. And actually, one of the interesting things is I've completely forgotten about my the research I was doing in 2014, which is a shame, I suppose. But, but that happens to everyone, doesn't it? You get a new project and you immediately forget. Yeah, but most people finish before. the whole project before they move oh, on and I sort sure. of didn't get around to it. I think you find yourself in the majority of British people who... Well, I find that reassuring. Don't finish it or, you know, start a box set. You know, it's it's endemic. It's everywhere. Uh, Hard-working British people. (laughs) That's right. Uh, You're also a specialist advisor to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. No, actually, they've sacked me. When you say sacked... Well, they changed their chair. Okay, so it's now Tom Tugendhat. It's now Tom Tugendhat. I was appointed by Crispin Blunt. Okay. So Um, they change over at that point. So sacked is putting it too strongly, yes. uh, How long did you do that for? Did it for a couple of years. 
And oh. how how much involvement did you have to have for them? Uh, what you basically do in that role is you talk to the clerks about inquiries, you suggest people they might get in as witnesses, questions they might be asking and stuff like that. I mean, actually, in my job now, we do a lot of work with a lot of select committees. I mean, not in a formal capacity. I have no formal attachment, but the clerks might ring us up and say, look, we're doing this, what do you think? Do you know any... I mean, you know, my job's twofold, I suppose. One is to make sure the inquiry is as good as possible because that's to all our benefit, but two is to get as many of our people in front of them as possible. Of course, so you can actually could sort of help out. Um, yeah. If I suggest names, there will always be one person from our team amongst those names. You can you can guarantee that. <laughs> but I suppose that's but then that's that's correct, isn't it? Because you you are at the centre of this. And we area are the best. Expertise. Exactly. Yeah. Would anyone would would are there any tensions within the academic community on things like that? Are there universities elsewhere saying, well, actually, you are you're part of this UK and a change in Europe. Actually, we've got we've got a guy or we're a professor up here who's who's way better than the rubbish you're putting out. Academia is quite bitchy. And quite competitive, that's certainly true. I mean, there are several things. Yes, there are people who might not have got grants or didn't apply who think, what are those lot now? I've been doing this for... And there are, you know, there are loads of fantastic people working on Brexit who aren't part of our team. There's a guy at Liverpool called Michael Dugan. There's a guy at Cambridge called Kenneth Armstrong. They're both lawyers. They're both superb. I mean, you know, we haven't got everyone. We had a finite amount of money. Okay, so there are loads of fantastic people working on Brexit, but we try and involve them in our stuff. The other thing is there's a curious snobbery in some parts of academia about doing this, you know, what we're doing now, about doing media stuff. No you know? way! Yeah, yeah, there's kind of... It's a kind, you know, for some people, I think it's probably the older generation, uh, it, there's this sort of, well, what are you doing that for? Why aren't you writing journal articles that no-one will ever read like you should be? Uh, but is that is that a kind of snobbery that... Um their expertise should only be delivered to the students or at the university and that pe- oiks like me shouldn't get the benefit of your brain? I don't know what, where it comes from. I mean, actually, on, on this voyage of self-discovery, what I've, no- <laughs> I've realised is I, I prefer doing this to doing that. I mean, that's why I'm having a bit of a dilemma about, you know, choices going forward, is that I'm not sure I ever want to write an academic article again. I quite, I get, you know... I quite like writing short things that lots of people read rather than long things that very few people read. You're going to end up working in the tabloids. You're going to end up doing... You're going to end up clickbait. That's that's the route you're I'll on. I'll tell you what, though. My God, wouldn't you love the job of writing headlines for The Sun? Oh, absolutely. I mean, wow. What a great life that must yeah. be. I mean, it must be just... You know, you have a laugh for a living. So let's say you didn't go into... You hadn't gone into academia. Yeah. And it wasn't politics. What else would you have done? Did you ever have a plan B or another ambition? Well, I mean, I sort of fell into academia because a door opened just as I was getting to the end of whatever I was doing and it was a sort of lack of choice rather than a choice. But I've loved it. I've loved it for many years. I just think I want to do something different now. Back then, I was quite tempted by being a barrister because I just quite like arguing and talking. Yeah. I can Uh, see that. That makes sense. It's kind of in the same world, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, the thought of... I've got a cousin who's a QC and sometimes I listen to his cases and I just think, God, that... <laughs> Standing up and having a row with someone. Well, that's not, I basically. didn't think you were yeah. going to say laugh. I thought you were going to say, God, that sounds awful. You no, know, it was just serious cases. Well, you know, I'm a bit of a show off, as you can tell. And so standing up in front of a court and making your own. I mean, maybe I'm just too into John Grisham. <laughs> maybe it's that. But yeah, it just I sounds think that like. It's a fictionalised. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Arnand, there's so much more we could have talked about. It's been a pleasure having you here. I hope you'll come on again in the future. Great to be here. Thank Good you. luck with your work as well. And hopefully, as a result of this, you'll get. Some listeners coming along to events. Fantastic. Up Come and along. The country. Come along. And, and experiencing your wonderful work. And actually, in the next couple of years, we hope to do more around the country, so we might even come to you.
great. Me personally. Well, you look right at me when you said that. Well, there we go. Just come around to my yeah, flat. Absolutely. <laughs> You've got a lot of chairs. I haven't. No, it's pose a pokey one bed loft right. Standing room only. I like that. Yeah, it'd be like the spirit of the terraces. <laughs> Not the, the, the good old days. That's right. Yeah. Arnon, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, there you go. What a top leg. I think he's promised me about three different guests there as well. So many other things we could have talked about. Email your thoughts to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I've had a number of emails um, over the last few... I mean, we get loads, and it's brilliant, and I love hearing from where you listen. And, I've been, you know, I've been trying to think of... I've constantly talking to Daisy about this, saying, we need to think of a reason to get people to email. And I think, just get in touch if you want to get in touch, and... I'll tell you what, because it's the local elections this week, and don't forget to vote on Thursday, um, any funny leaflets or anything like that, any stories that you think would tickle myself or indeed other fellow listeners, send them in. The the more local and the small sometimes, the better, but maybe if it's a story you think we've missed. But also, just get in touch on anything, on any aspect of the show. Uh, it's always nice to know where you listen. But any thoughts, whatever, any reflections, all help add to the debate. Gary Fantana, who I'm pre- I'm presuming should be pronounced like Santana. Gary Fantana. Could be it could be Gary Fantana. Like Cantana. But that would be like Cantana. Gary Fantana? Who knows? After my Arnand Anand experience, I'm questioning my pronunciation so much more. But Gary Fantana, produced like San, pronounced like Santana, says, What I've been wondering is, where's the merch? If you're putting all this out for free, I think you should give your listeners the opportunity to give a little back. Maybe have badges for a five or a tenner. I'm sure others like me would be more than willing to offer a few quid in return for all the free entertainment, even if it just went towards buying you a pint. Just an idea. As far as listening locations go, I'm usually on the Jubilee line or on quiet days listening at my desk, which can be quite tricky if there's a funny bit. Firstly, Jubilee line, best tube line there is out there, not including the overground. Daisy Knight's shaking head. What's the best tube line then? Central. Why central better? Because it goes to where... Yeah, but you can't just have it because it goes to where you live. I mean, the Jubilee line does go to where I live, but that's not the point. I loved it from the outset. Best stations, best rolling stock. The overground doesn't count, but that's that's way up there as well. I mean, he's, Gary has suggested it. Money towards buying a pint. Maybe just buy me a pint. Although we might look at merch. Uh, Alona Delinsky is a PhD student. She says, I mostly listen to the show on my way to and from work in Baltimore, Maryland which may not sound like someone from Baltimore or Maryland, but also when I'm cooking or procrastinating on whatever it is I'm meant to do next. I listen to podcasts while I cook. I also listen to it on my travels to Israel. And while there, and when again on my next family visit there next week, as I do want to reach the current episode. Isn't that incredible? I plan on coming to a live show next time I visit London and I hope that happens soon. Well, you can get tickets to all those live shows on the other Palace website. Um... Colin Martin got in touch. Now, this is interesting. This is, I suppose, what I'm talking about in terms of you can email on anything. Rosie Campbell talked about job sharing for MPs. Colin Martin's got in touch. Hi, Matt. I've just finished listening to your podcast with Rosie Campbell. I think Rosie is probably just about sobered up by now. He says, I was particularly particularly interested... That was my comment, not his. I was particularly interested in the discussion about job sharing for MPs. It's an idea I've been thinking of for some time as a way of increasing access to the role for a wider range of people. Perhaps an easier way to introduce it would be through local councils. Any teething problems could be ironed out without putting the nation in peril. Cornwall Council currently has 123 councillors, but following a boundary review, the number is being cut to just 87. 
I would suggest 123 needed cutting. Anyway, he says, this will mean a significant increase in the workload for the average councillor. Well, for some of them, for the average, you're absolutely right, some of them not so much, right? meaning many existing councillors with caring responsibilities, work commitments or health conditions will be forced to give up their roles. The next election's three years away, so there's time left to get things organised. And the fact we're going undergoing a major change can make this a, a good opportunity to introduce this new concept. Cornwall was also the first rural area to agree a devolution deal with government, so there's already a recognition that we are a council that likes to break new ground. Isn't this fascinating? I could tell you were excited by the idea. I am Colin of Job Sharing for elected representatives, so I hope you will be able to put me in touch with Rosie and that you will both support me in campaigning for Cornwall to be the first council to introduce Job Sharing for councillors. Best regards, Colin Martin, Cornwall councillor for Lost With Eel? Lost With Eel. Come on, mate. Vice Chair of Cornwall Liberal Democrats. So there you go, this is reaching the political arena already. Now, Colin, I can't guarantee that I will get involved in this specific campaign, but I will put you in touch with Professor Rosie... Ka you can get in touch with her through Twitter, I suppose. Just tweet her, Col. But if you do, do get in touch if you do need further help. As long as Rosie agrees. This is turning into some sort of political speed dating event where I am merely a, a sort of ringmaster for a networking event. Um, maybe we should do a political party networking event. That's an awful idea. It's never going to happen, but the live events will continue. My next guest at the live event is the is the creator, obviously the host, the creator of Momentum, the grassroots left-wing organisation that delivered Jeremy Corbyn the Labour leadership and has been arguably the most revolutionary force in British politics in a very long time. So I'm very excited about that. Some, I mean, I cannot yet announce some of the guests for the monthly or indeed the weekly shows, but all... if. My God, it is very, very exciting. We've got some phenomenal guests coming up. Of course, all the guests are wonderful. I've wanted to interview them all for a wonderful time. And, of course, the hour flew by. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Oh, a couple of things. Do try and vote for us. <laughs> Do vote for us in the, let's say, uh, the show in the British Podcast Awards. Go to BritishPodcastAwards.com and, if you could, vote for the political party to be your listener's choice podcast of the year. I'd be very grateful. Do review it. Do hit subscribe. Do tell people about it. It'd be wonderful. And as always... Well, not as always, because we had a few weeks off here and there. But on the whole, and in its entirety today, this show has been produced by Daisy Knight.